You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. You know, years ago, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary shared with us the story of the piece of marble that is now known worldwide as Michelangelo's David how that piece of marble was selected and then quarried, and then it was left to rot and sit out in the elements for 35 years because several other artists had seen what Michelangelo saw. They saw a flaw in the marble. If you look at that statue, you can see that it leans to one direction. The reason it leans to that direction is because there is a vein in that marble that other famous artists, Donatello, Da Vinci, they all said, I can't use this marble. If I hit it wrong, the whole thing will be wasted. And so what Michelangelo saw when he saw that vein was he saw an opportunity there to take the flaw in the marble and work around it to create the masterpiece. And for two years, he carved on that piece of marble, removing everything that was not David. And now it is a six-ton piece of marble that is a masterpiece that couldn't be bought with any amount of money because it was in the hands of a master sculptor who saw the flaw but saw a way to work a masterpiece through that. That story has impacted me because we need to have a theology of suffering. We need to understand before you get in the valley and try to sort it out, before you're there, you need to have a theology of suffering. How and why does God allow us to go through terrible difficulties, trials of many kinds? If he loves us, and we we sing that he loves us, we proclaim that he loves us, and now and then we walk through something, and many of you are probably in that moment right now. You're in a valley and you are suffering And you sing songs about the kindness of God and the faithfulness of God. And you wonder, is that true for me or just for everybody else? Because they're a little bit better Christian than I am. They're doing better than I'm doing. They're better at this somehow. And because they're better at this, maybe God loves them more. And that's why their life is so neatly put together. And I quietly have the doubt and the fear that maybe God doesn't feel that way about me. Well, Peter, all through his book, speaks about suffering. And as we close out chapter 5, he ends again with a message and a statement about suffering. And I so want you to hear from God this morning. I want to shape a narrative in your heart from the pages of Scripture, the truth of God's Word about who He is, about who you are, and how and why He allows suffering into our lives. And so I've got to do something I've got that is beyond me this morning. I've got to preach with clarity what is true so that you can hear the voice of God. And I just want to ask God for his help, for me to preach, but for you to hear. I want you to hear from God's word this morning, what is true, what is eternal, what is glorious. And so I know that as you come into this time of worship where we've sung what is true and we've Uh, confessed what is true, and you're about to hear from the pages of Scripture what is true, I want you to ask God with open hands, the posture of your soul, open-handed saying, Father, I need to hear your voice this morning. Will you join me in prayer?
Father in heaven, I worship you with my family here this morning. We thank you that you are eternally good. You are patient. You are wise. You know what you're doing. And you have complexities in the way you govern the universe that we could never even imagine. God, our knowledge of how to make things work and how to avoid suffering are not sophisticated enough to not need you. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. God, help me to proclaim what is true, to say with clarity what is true, but also help my brothers and sisters to hear your voice above the chaos and the static and all the competing voices that they're listening to right now and give them peace in the name of Jesus that you are exactly who you say you are, you are kind, you are gracious, and you are patient, and you cause all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to your purposes, those who love you, and we want to hear that now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. He says to the elders in earlier in chapter 5 that you are to submit yourself to the chief shepherd yours to humble yourself as elders of the church, as leaders and shepherds of the church, you are to humble yourself and follow your chief shepherd. Make no apology as you lead the church for what the Word of God says, even if it goes countercultural, right? You need to stand up with boldness and humble yourself and proclaim what is true. And now he turns his attention and says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Every generation of 18 to 25-year-olds looks at their parents and their grandparents, and they see with great moral clarity how they've failed. They see how that generation just doesn't get it. They just don't understand what's going on and how to do it. And so they know with certainty that they've got a great heart for the downtrodden. They know with certainty what they would do in any moral question, uh, any, any dilemma that the world is facing, exactly what they do. This is part of being 18 to 25. Sometimes it starts a little earlier. Sometimes it lasts a little longer. But here's the thing that causes it to all fall apart, this great clarity of what you would do, is when that electric bill comes and it's got your name on it and everything changes. And everybody that is a little bit more seasoned in life laughed at that because they know that's exactly what happened. It's a weird thing that happens when all of a sudden it's you paying for the, the mortgage or you paying for the electric bill, and all of a sudden the world looks very complex, not quite as easy to discern how the whole thing works. At the core of every sin is pride. That's the great sin behind the other sins. It's this idea that I know best, I know what I'm doing, I don't need help, I can discern for myself what the right things are, what my preferences are, have to be recognized, I have to have my opinion heard and seen and valued. There, when I came into the network, Acts 29, years and years ago, there were some things the network was known for. It was kind of a caricature, but it, there was some truth to it that these young pastors have fantastic beards, they love bourbon, and they like to cuss, 
and uh, they've got robust Reformed theology. <laughs> I thought, surely that's a joke, right? You get there and you find out, yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Instead of Acts 29, it was called A29, and the A29 stand for angry 29-year-olds. We know what church ought to be, and we're going to do it this way. And a lot of us kind of came into that, the network, thinking, maybe that's right. Maybe my ideas are better. And maybe I do have a great sense of clarity about Reformed theology and how it works and how it plays out and what is the gospel and all of that. But I'm going to tell you this, that is a prideful posture. And God says through the Apostle Peter, for you who are younger, you need to be subject to the elders. And here's what he's saying, you need to place yourself in a... uh, Underneath the recognized authority that exists, these elders who are biblically qualified and they've lived more life than you've lived, they've been around the block a few times, they've seen God in the good times, in the bad times. What they say about God is not just theoretical. And there are men in this church that are older than me, and when I sit with them and talk with them about God, I'm thinking of Wayne, I'm thinking of Bob, I'm thinking of these men. As I listen to them, I realize there is a humility for me. These guys are barely older than me, but they're older than me, and they have walked with God longer than I have. And it is, even as a leader of this church, it is wise for me to just listen and ask questions. I'm younger than them, though I'm an elder in this church. And as I listen and I gain the wisdom God has given them, I'm richer for it. He says, you who are younger, and this does not just mean chronologically younger, you have been given shepherds and pastors. And even if your ideas are better or wiser, maybe they are, maybe they're not, but be humble. Clothe yourself with humility. Repent of the idea that you know it all and you've got it all figured out because that is not the posture that God will honor and recognize. Place yourself under the authority that God has given you inside the church as elders. See them as a gift from God. And I say that as an elder, and I say that with no sense of confidence in myself, but confidence in what the Lord has called me to do, confidence in what the Lord has given me in my understanding of the Scripture to lead the church with Michael and to say, follow us. Follow us as we shepherd your souls, imperfectly for sure. Clothe yourself with humility. This is an important idea, this clothing yourself. In the Scriptures, there are several places where being clothed in righteousness or being clothed in Jesus Christ is a picture of what is the most obvious thing about you. Psalm um, 73, he talks about people being clothed in violence. There are people that are clothed with the action of violence. It's very obvious that they are ready to go fisticuffs or worse. He says, for you, you should be clothed in humility toward one another. And listen to this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a great picture because it actually says in the original language that God comes out in military array against the proud. God sets up military array against those who are proud. Why? I mean, 
Why? That seems like a very strong thing to say, and it is strong, because it was through pride that the devil became the devil, that he was at one time Lucifer, he was the son of the morning star, that he was the great anointed cherub, and it was through pride that he started to see himself as worthy of worship. God should not be the only one receiving worship, that he should receive worship. There's a a verse I want to tell you about that's probably the only good thing that this king ever said, King Ahab. He said in 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 11, he said, tell him, speaking to another young leader, he said, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Let the guy that's about to go into battle, he's putting his armor on, talking about everything he's going to do when he gets out there. Let him not boast like the guy that's already done it, because that's pride. You imagine what you would do in that moment. You imagine that you know the solid ground that you're standing on and that it will hold up and that you're going to be okay. And I'll tell you something, as one who has suffered, as one who has walked with God and been disoriented by suffering, and I lost any conviction that my grip on God was sufficient I found out his grip on me was sufficient. And you meet God in the middle of your darkness. You meet God in brand new ways. A God who is bigger than you, wiser than you, more capable than you, more determined than you, richer than you. And so all of the things that I could preach before deep suffering, they were true, but they were more theoretical than I realized. And I came to know God in the midst of the valley And I want you to know that if you're suffering right now, God is at work in the midst of that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I made the statement that Lucifer became the adversary, became Satan through pride. There's debate about whether Isaiah 14 really speaks about the devil, but I don't see any other way around it. Same with Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. But listen to these words. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. There's five I wills there. And he's basically saying over and over again, I will go higher than you. I will set myself up on a throne above you. I'm going to be the captain of my ship. I am going to receive glory and worship and praise. Not just you, Creator. So at the heart of all sin the very first sin, not on earth but in heaven, was Lucifer claiming, I will, five times. And that's why when we sing songs like, Lord, there's none like you. There's no one higher than you. We're just in a sense saying, no, you won't. No, you won't. The actions that follow that are actions of humility. Neither will I, God. So there is safety in these words, and I want you to hear this. As you suffer, humble yourself. Don't try to sort it out by yourself. Don't try to figure out what you can do to right the ship. 
Don't try to figure out how you can stand on your own two feet any longer. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Listen to this. He is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so he says next, humble yourselves, therefore, because of that, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So in recognition of how God is at work, he not only opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember the word grace means divine enablement. It means unmerited favor, something you didn't work for or earn, that God gives favor apart from works, but he also gives divine enablement. God gives grace to the humble. And so the person that walks forward saying, God, I'm no longer trying to stand up on my own two feet. I'm looking to you. God gives grace to that person. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. It's, it's deciding no longer to pull against him. It's a surrender. You don't do it once in life. You do it at every season of life, where you look afresh at the circumstances of your life, and rather than trying to create for yourself a way forward in your own steam, you look up to God and say, I'm not enough. I'm in over my head. I can't rely on my own strength to navigate this season. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. So here's what it's going to look like. You're going to go into a season of anonymity where you serve God and no one but God sees it. Nobody's going to tell you thank you. No one's going to appreciate you. No one's going to recognize your, uh, your efforts and give you a plaque or mention you on some social media posting. You're going to serve in complete anonymity, not for the eyes of men, but for the eyes of God. You're going to struggle, and you're going to feel very alone in that. And in that time, the eyes of God are upon you. He's watching you as you're trying to be the best spouse you can be as you're trying to be the hardest, most faithful worker that you know how to be. No one's telling you thank you. No one's seeing it but God. And this brings pleasure to God. He sees you. He knows you. He's watching you. And at the proper time, when he is ready, he'll exalt you. You won't have to do it yourself. You won't have to read your resume or drop hints. I'm terrible at this. We, we cook... I, we had dinner last night. My wife fixed a portion of it. And I fixed a portion of it. My, one of my kids says, thanks for dinner, Mom. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I grilled the chicken. It was me. Like, there's something in us that wants credit, wants to be recognized, even in our own home with our teenage kids, right? And God calls you to let down any sense of being recognized and praised and valued and appreciated Serve for his glory, serve for his kingdom, serve for all of his fame. And at the proper time, he'll do the exalting. You won't have to do it yourself. That's a lonely, hard thing. You might find yourself going, yeah, that, that sounds great. Like, put yourself in the posture. I, I'll say this as a spouse, as a man who wants to be a great spouse, a great husband, or, and even working with Michael as a co-pastor, 
my posture that I want to have at all times is I'm on give. I'm just on the posture of give. How do I make your life better? How do I make you smile? How do I make you happy? How do I help you enjoy your day? What if I just do this for the glory of God? Just a posture of generosity, a posture of I want you to uh, enjoy working here. I want you to enjoy living here. I want, you to, I want to be on that constant give for the glory of God. You know what rises up in anybody in that moment is, what about me? What about me? I mean, if I, if, I, if I do that, what if I become a doormat? Nobody cares about my preferences, my wants. What if nobody looks out for me? I'm just always on, won't I become a doormat? I mean, tell me you wouldn't feel that, that sense of getting lost in trying to serve God for the, His glory by serving other people and just trying to be a biblically uh, guided spouse, a biblically guided worker, any of that stuff, wouldn't you feel a little bit like a fear would hit you of, yeah, see, I'd love to do that, but that sounds really hard. Well, look what Peter says next. Casting all your anxieties on him, the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. The idea of casting your anxieties would mean this. Lay hold of that thing you're afraid of. Don't let it just buzz around in your head. Because you know what happens, like if your anxieties, if you don't grab them, you go from, I didn't do the dishes, and so this is going to happen, and that's going to we're going to end up homeless. We're just going to end up homeless. I just know it. The whole thing's going to unravel. You start to stack one anxiety on top of another, and before you know it, you've worked yourself into such a dither that you find yourself imagining the worst-case scenario, and, and, and there you are. Now that vision of the future has become so heavy in your thoughts that all you can do is sit there and stew about how to not let that happen. And backtracking from there, you've got to control this moment. You've got to get a hold of it, okay? That's what he's telling you, don't do that. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here's the picture. These thoughts, these anxious thoughts, these fearful thoughts, lay hold of them in your mind with both of your hands like a slippery, wet, slimy thing and say, I've got you now and I'm carrying you to my Father. And I'm going to take this thought and I'm going to hold it up to my Father and say, you take it. Casting your anxieties on Him. He cares for you. Take hold of that. The idea of casting literally here is to take your keys out of your pocket, throw them across the room, and somebody else is going to have them now. Can you, for a moment, just between me, you, and God, so don't answer out loud, can you name the thing you're most afraid of right now? At this season of your life, what do you fear? What is the anxiety that keeps you awake at night? What does the Word of God say about it? Take a hold of that thing. Don't be passive. Don't just sit around hoping it'll go away. Take it. Throw it to God. And if it comes back, take it again, throw it again. What you'll find is that it is a battle, but you'll also find that it starts to lessen every time. 
Every time, you let, every time you get a hold of it and you give it to God, you'll find yourself feeling greater and greater relief. Because God cares for you. Now, you need to know that the word is an active word. He cares is an ongoing verb. It means he is actively, attentively, with great passion and tenderness, caring for you. Remember who he is. He's the chief shepherd. So he knows you. He sees you. He understands you. He's at work caring for you. And the beauty of that, and when you see somebody who has come to realize that, you'll find a soul at peace, resting, rather than terrified and trying to control. Now, if there was ever a a red light blinking verse, it's the next one. You know, there's a couple in the New Testament. There's one in Matthew 7 talks about uh, the day of judgment, away from me, I never knew you. That's a blinking red light. Well, I'm about to read you not a coffee mug verse, but a blinking red light verse. Listen to this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you need to be sober-minded. You need to be clear-headed about this. You have an enemy who would love to devour you. He hates you. He wants to see your worst-case scenario multiplied times 10, and he wants to visit that upon you. My grandmother Banks, my mom's mom, kindest woman I've ever met in my life. Can't wait for you to meet her in heaven. When I was a little bitty guy, she'd sit me on her lap before I'd go to bed at night. She'd pray over me, and she'd tell me stories about God from the Bible. And I remember she told me um, a story about how, who the devil was and all that. And I said, well, what, why does he hate me? What did I ever do? Like, I didn't pick this fight. Like, what? Why does the devil hate me? And she said something that sounded like this. He hates you because you carry the image of God in you. You shine brightly in the darkness, and that makes him look ugly and stupid. Ugly and stupid, because he used to worship God face to face. He used to have a front row view to worshiping God. You never had a front row view. You have by faith in a mirror dimly something that he had in its fullness and you worshiping God in this world, in this broken world, with your flaws, with all of that, she said, it makes him look ugly and stupid, and so he hates you. He hates you. And he is stalking you in order to devour you. You might say, well, I don't want to fight. I think his answer would be fine. That makes it easier. Don't fight. I'll just eat you up quicker. You need to understand that what Peter has just said is that anxious, prideful people, anxious and prideful, those who can't be taught, those who don't need a shepherd, nah, you got this thing, you're good. You don't, you don't see the church or local pastors as a gift in your life. You see them as kind of good guys that maybe you could submit to or you could follow if you want, as long as it makes sense to you. He, he says, you know, you're going to make a meal. I will attack you. I'll do it through distraction. I'll do it through discouragement. I'll do it through 
discrediting you, but I will eat you. Prideful people, if you read Proverbs chapter 20, or pardon me, chapter 12, it goes on and on about the fool. Anybody who hires a, a fool or a passerby is like somebody that hires an archer that's shooting everybody. A fool returned to his vomit. Or like, like a dog returns to his vomit, a fool returns to his folly. It goes on and on about fools. And then at the end of it in verse 12, you know what it says? See a man who is wise in his own eyes. There's more hope for a fool than for that guy. So these people, and I hope it's not you. I know that for a season of my life, it was me. I had it all figured out, knew what I was doing, right? And so I wasn't very teachable in that season That's the kind of person that Satan is stalking. The kind of person that can't be taught or the kind of person who is absolutely unwilling to acknowledge that they're they're afraid. Their anxieties have laid hold of them and Satan has got his eyes on you to destroy you. And this is the kind of stuff that we want to say as a church, please, please, Let's come together. Let's pray together. Let's ask God for protection together. Let's look to him together. Let's not be so prideful that we don't need that. Let's not be so uh, frightened that we hide everything we're afraid of so no one has to see. Your adversary is seeking someone to devour. And that someone is us when we're anxious and can't be taught. I so want you to hear me now. All of us can fall into that trap. I invite you to come into the family of God and find shepherding for your soul, find safety, find a place where you can be taught and instructed, but also so that you can live your life saying to somebody somewhere, hey, I'm really worried about this. Will you pray for me? I'm scared of what's coming my way. I feel outmatched by this season that's in front of me. Pray for me. Listen to what he says. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think this is really great. See, Satan attacked Peter. You guys know that, right? That on uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed, I mentioned this last week, it bears repeating that Peter told Jesus, I'm not like the rest of these guys. See, I'll go with you to prison even unto death. I'll follow you. And he says, Peter, you don't know your own heart. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And tonight you will deny that you even know me three times before the rooster crows. Peter must have thought, that's crazy talk. I would never do that. Okay, he got sifted. He got broken. He got exposed. Listen, Satan attacked Peter, and now Peter is saying, guess what, guys? That could be you as well. And he is stronger than you. He's more persistent than you. He is a chess player. You're a checker player. He's going to get you unless you draw near to God and resist him firm in your faith, knowing that other Christians around the globe are going through it too. And this is one of the terrible narratives when you're suffering is nobody else would understand this. I'm all alone in this. I'm the only person who's ever walked on this path. Guess what? There are other believers around the globe at this moment experiencing the exact kind of suffering you are. You're not alone. The narrative of comparison 
leads you to believe that everybody else has got this perfect marriage and this perfect financial situation and this perfect family, and, and here you are struggling alone, and you think no one else would get it. It's, it's not true. Peter says there's other Christians going through this too. And that's why we continually invite you into gospel community. We want you to not just show up here on Sunday and hear the truth. We want you to make friends. And so in those friendships, you can say to somebody, look, I am dealing with this confusing thing and I need your help. Pray for me. Resist him firm in your faith. And now listen to this, verse 10. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, there's something so personally wonderful about that, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This verse is actually one of the first verses I memorized as a, as a new believer, a guy that was mentoring me said, you need to memorize this verse. You're going to face some hard things. And you know what he says here? Hey, you're going to suffer for a little while. You're going to walk through some really ugly, hard things. And you're going to, whether you say it or not, you're going to want to look up at heaven and like, what are you doing? I love you, God, but I'm confused. Well, guess what? Suffering is for a purpose and for a season. It won't last forever. Friends, hear me. If it's in your life, then God is at work. God is using it. God is going to, for a season of time, allow something in your life that you would not have chosen for yourself. And if you could get rid of it, you would. But you can't. Nobody can write a check to make it go away. You can't just reverse and go back to high ground. You can't just curl up in a ball in a fetal position and hope it goes away. God is going to leave that thing in your life. And after you've suffered for a little while, now I don't know how long a little while is. I've found it to be longer than I liked. There came a time in my life, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, when I just was so disoriented that I, I walked into my elders and I told them, and I said, guys, I can't preach on Sunday. Why not? Robert, what's going on? I don't know if God's kind. I thought, oh gosh, why did I say that out loud? Like, who talks like that, especially a seasoned Christian? Can't say stuff like that. That's where I was at. And this lasted, I want to say, about three months. About three months. Such a heaviness that when I woke up in the morning, it was like a, I could wake up and, and, and be in a peaceful place, but I mean, within 15 seconds, that cloud just descended on me, like a cloud of darkness and fear and sense of, oh, just dread just descended on me. And I remember on a prayer drive when I went out to pray one day, and this is super humbling for me, but I, I want to share it because it may be helpful for you. I didn't have any words to say, so I just screamed. <laughs> I just, I had found that verse in Hebrews about Jesus lifting up loud laments and cries on his earthly pilgrimage. And I thought, well, if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And I just, I just let out with screams of lament and, and anxiety. I just did until I lost my voice. And I think it's probably the most articulate prayers I've ever prayed in front of the Father. And I remember once my head cleared a little bit in the middle of that. See, normally I walk and pray, but in, 
Illinois about this time of year, you ain't walking. It's too cold. So I went out for a drive, and as I was driving and I'd finished that, I said to God, no longer am I asking you to take this out of my life, this thing that's crushing me. Leave me in this valley until you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. Don't take this pain in this valley away until you have shaped Jesus in me the way you want to shape Jesus in me. You know what it sounded like in my heart as I look back? God, I don't want to be transactional anymore. You know what I mean by that transactional? Like, God, I'm going to love you and worship you as long as you kind of make things go my way. I just want you. Give me you. More of you. So that whether I'm in a good time, a bad time, a boring time, at least I'm there with you. Now look at what he says. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to eternal glory, meaning, hey, listen, you know you're heading home, right? But you have to walk this path to get there. You're going to have some mountain peaks and you're going to have some valleys. He's called you to his eternal grace. He himself will restore Come on, you guys, you ever watch Chip and Joanna where they, they, they got this thing now where they bought a castle and they restored this castle? It's in Waco, but it's like, golly, this thing's beautiful. It's better than it was when it was first built. It's restored. And he's going to do that in your life. Better than when you were first saved. He's going to make something beautiful in your life. He's going to restore. He's going to confirm Meaning, when you look at that season of your life, you'll say, that was absolutely right. God has confirmed the work that he was doing there. He has strengthened, given me power through that, and established like a root system that is now ready to walk through the droughts and the storms of life because God has established something in me. And that's a beautiful thing. As we close out this book, I, I would be remiss if I did not show you what is in these final greetings. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This word Silvanus is also Silas. This is the traveling partner of Paul. This is also a church planter who's mentioned many times through the scriptures. He says, I judge him as a faithful brother. Now, this is great because he didn't say, I judge him as a really brilliant brother. He doesn't say that. I judge him as a really strategically bright and brilliant guy. No, he says he's faithful. He doesn't say that he's rich. He doesn't say that he's tricky. He doesn't say that he's articulate. He says he's faithful. Now, this is a great thing that God has called us to be faithful, to stay the course to keep moving forward, to keep repenting where we need to repent, to keep calling on God for grace. That's what a faithful person does. They just keep on keeping on. They don't have to be tricky or fancy. They just have to be day in, day out faithful. And where we fail, we ask God to forgive us. That's part of faithfulness. Well, Silas or Silvanus is faithful, and he says, I've briefly told you over and over again how to walk with God in this life. I've showed you how to lean on him and the grace that is yours. He says, stand firm in that. Stand firm like a tree that is planted by the side of the river. Let your roots go deep into Christ as you live as a sojourner in this life. Stand firm in it. Verse 13 is really interesting. She who is at Babylon 
who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. <laughs> Babylon is actually uh, Peter's code word for Rome. He knows that this letter will be read in Roman provinces, and he says, she who is in Babylon, and he's referring to Rome because of all the false religions there. She who is in Babylon, there's lots of Christians in Rome, but they're secretly hiding their faith so they don't get persecuted worse. That's his way of saying there are other believers that are walking this path with you. They greet you, and so does Mark, the gospel writer, the companion of Peter who traveled with him and traveled later with Paul, the one that was rejected by Paul but later on called for as useful. He says, all of them greet you and greet one another with the kiss of love, affection. Let it be obvious that you're not at odds with each other that you are at peace with one another. That was their cultural thing, and that's what they did. I don't encourage it here. I mean, maybe a handshake, fist bump, something like that. That's the way they did it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, many years ago, when my daughter, who is now 24, almost 24, um, when she was two, and Grammy came to visit, she got so excited She's dancing around the living room. She's just having a big old time, and suddenly she trips over her own feet, and she goes straight into a corner of a coffee table and just splits her lip just wide open. It was awful. Like, and we, had, we took her to the emergency room, and we're there, and uh, somehow there's a plastic surgeon that was there in residence or whatever he was doing, but he was there that day, and he said, I'll take care of this one, you know, so that I'll, I'll put it back together where no one will ever know. So Monica goes into the emergency room, and she's in there for maybe two, three minutes. She comes out, and I can't do it. You got to get in there. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, can, <laughs> come on, <laughs> you need to do this. And she's like, no way, can't do it. I'm like, All right, I got it. And so I, I go into the emergency room. They got my little, my firstborn, right, two-year-old, strapped in such a way that she can't raise her arms. She's on the table. There's this big circular light bearing down on her. And they said, and so I'm holding her hand down through the thing, praying over her as we go. And this plastic surgeon takes a needle and starts giving her shots right inside the wound. And she's just screaming. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my word, I was not prepared to see that. And then, you know, shots here and here, and then finally he starts stitching, and he starts stitching her back together. And he finally, he looks at me and starts barking, sit down, Mr. Livingston, sit down. And I'm like, what is his problem? He goes, you're not breathing, you're about to pass out. And so I sit down, and I'm trying to get my head together. And at the end, I asked him, I said, how did you have the nerve, how did you have the nerve to go through with what you had to do, giving a two-year-old shots, right? And he goes, I knew what I needed to get done, and that's how I had to get it done. So I was able to do it. And I've thought about that lesson many times as I look back on my own personal struggles in this life. Our Father loves us so much that He is willing to do what He needs to do to shape Christ in us. I'm sorry if you're suffering this morning. I really am. My heart goes out to you. It's discouraging, and it's lonely, and it's disorienting. But friends, hear me. If God has chosen to allow something into your life, it's because he is at work chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. 
and you need the body of Christ, and you need pastors. Pastors are a gift. You need the body of Christ engaged in the midst of your difficulty because it's hard enough with all of those gifts in place, let alone if you're by yourself. So this is my invitation. Let's go to the table again, and let's remember that God's not mad at you. The work has been finished for you in Jesus. Let's go to the table and eat, drink, and remember the grace of God that is ours in Christ. Let's come together on Wednesday or on Thursday, and let's pray for each other because we need that family connection. Pray with me.